Welcome to the New Retirement Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Brian Bollinger, an entrepreneur and founder of Simply Safe Dividends, about dividend investing and generating passive income. Brian is a former equity research analyst and registered CPA who quit his investment job to start his own company at 26. We got connected to Brian when one of our users mentioned his service, and we got to talking since we share a similar audience. I'm particularly interested in, in this podcast since the idea of generating less risky, reliable income from more of my portfolio is appealing. So uh, with that, Brian, welcome to our show. It's uh, great to have you join us. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. Um, so Brian, I just wanted to kind of jump in and you know, just learn a little bit more about what first got you interested in dividend investing. Well, growing up, baseball was always my passion. I collected a lot of baseball cards. I loved reading through stats in the newspaper on games, and I spent you know, countless hours throwing a ball against our brick wall and fielding it myself. It was everything I loved to do. But um, you know, my baseball game kind of peaked out in the fifth grade. <laughs> that was my last good season. So uh, I kind of redirected that passion and shifted my attention towards wanting to become a general manager of a major league baseball team one day, which I thought was the next best thing. And so I was pursuing this avenue. Um, you know, I read up on what the current GMs of the day, where they had started off. And a lot of them had either played professionally in the past or they sort of got started working in an athletic department when they were younger. So I decided, all right, let's, let's give this a shot. And um, I grew up in the Illinois suburbs. I reached out to Northern Illinois University in DeKalb and uh, was able to connect with someone there and work the summer unpaid in their athletic department. And I was doing stuff like helping with marketing, some data work, uh, kind of back office tasks. But it was the beginning of learning how the sausage was made. And I continued doing that work in college at Indiana University. And uh, I guess it advanced a little bit. I was then overseeing you know, where the women's volleyball team would eat meals when they traveled on the road. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was kind of grueling work. And uh, the more I kind of learned about the sports management side, the less interested I was becoming in that path. It seemed pretty daunting for a number of reasons. So... About that time, um, I began to discover investing, and it had really clicked. I think, uh, in hindsight, you know, there's a lot of similarities actually between studying the game of baseball and investing. Um, you know, you're instead of players, it's companies, though, right? So you're you're trying to decide how much is this business worth? Is this a good business? Um, are people valuing it too highly, or maybe it's cheap? And uh, there are so many different companies to learn about. So it really set me down that track. And I was fortunate enough after college to begin um, as an actual investment analyst at an investment fund, getting to study companies all day. It was awesome. So how does this all tie into dividend investing? Well, the philosophy I developed through these experiences, um, you know, I, I like companies that are pretty boring, stable businesses that generate a lot of cash flow. They have predictable operations. And it just so happens that a lot of companies that pay reliable dividends have those traits. So there was kind of a, a natural fit with my own investment philosophy that I had developed through my experience. And then as an investor, you know, I like knowing how long it'll take me to get my money back. I like being paid in cash. Um, and the appeal of passive income is obviously really big too. This concept of building a safe, growing stream of income that can, you know, one day meet my retirement needs is a really appealing message. So. Dividend investing has kind of fit the way I'm wired. It fits my philosophy, and it has a lot of appealing elements that I really believe in, too. That's awesome. It's great to hear how you kind of got here. So I, I take it you've read Moneyball. 
read it, seen the movie. My brother-in-law quotes it incessantly. <laughs> and do you play fantasy football or fantasy baseball as well? Yeah, I think I'm last place in my league right now. So <laughs> yeah, I try, but there's a lot of randomness involved. Right. That's what I say. Yeah. I actually think fantasy football, it, it, uh, I played for a few seasons and, and definitely I saw that it was, it's, it's all about being emotionally unattached to your players and not being a hardcore fan. It's just about finding the guys that produce the best and like putting them together, you know, the poor man's version of Moneyball. Um, okay. That's, that's pretty cool. So, um, I mean, do you feel personally like you've been successful, um, building, you know, your portfolio and, and, you know, pursuing this dividend investing strategy? Yeah, so success is one of those interesting things to define, right? Everyone can kind of come up with their own benchmark to look successful. Um, what kind of troubled me when I was working in the investment management field was that I kind of describe it as, you know, in many cases, wealth seemed to flow in one direction and it often wasn't towards the client, whether it's, you know, poor performance or high fees. And uh, just look at the numbers. I mean, we've seen this big wave of money moving out of actively managed funds into low-cost ETFs and index funds. And it's, you know, Standard & Poor's comes out with a study every year, and uh, they showed that over the last 15 years, I think over 90% of all U.S. large, mid, small, and all-cap active funds have been outperformed by their benchmarks after fees. So it's, it's incredibly hard to beat the market. And uh, that's not what I'm setting out to do. I think what attracts me to dividend paying stocks is when they're used with retirement in mind, I think there can actually be a legitimate sustained skill with avoiding dividend cuts, generating safe income, and seeking to keep up with the broader market over time while having a more defensive portfolio. And with those benchmarks, yes, it's been very successful. The company was only started in 2015, about four years ago, so we've not had you know, a full economic cycle or a downturn to live through. But um, to date, you know, our dividend safety score system, which we can talk more about later, has avoided 98% of dividend cuts in advance. And the three portfolios that we have that I actively manage in our newsletter and I personally invest in myself, um, those have all generated annualized total returns between 12 and 14%, while the S&P 500 has been up about 11%. I don't expect that to continue. I think mean reversion is a powerful force, but from a question of how has the strategy been doing, can this work, um, using this admittedly narrow time period, sure, it's, it's working well and I expect it to with the focus again on safe dividends. I think there's skill behind that and I don't really believe anyone can consistently outperform the market by a meaningful amount over time. So um, that's where I'm yeah. coming at. Cool. No, it's great to get your perspective and we'll dive more into that because uh, there's, you know, we're definitely kind of on the passive side of the, 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 you know, opinion spectrum, I guess, but I, I, mm -hmm. I, I get what you're doing and I want to, I want to dive into it, but, um, you know, so before we get into that, I, I, I'd love to just kind of have you give us a quick overview kind of the, on the, the history of dividend investing. I, I was, you know, in preparation for this, I was reading up on, um, you know, kind of how this got started and, you know, the first publicly traded company was, uh, the Dutch East India company which uh, was created in 1602 and paid dividends for 180 years, which was pretty uh, surprising for me to read. Um, and I guess they, it looks like they paid roughly 18% annually. So that, uh, you know, the, uh, I mean, originally, you know, most people invested in the market for income, right? To get dividends. And then it, 
in the past several decades, it's shifted more towards kind of capital appreciation. Um, and many companies, especially tech companies, don't pay dividends. They just keep the cash, reinvest it, or, you know, in the case of Apple, they, they hoard huge amounts of cash. Um, but we'd love to kind of get your perspective on kind of how, how dividend investing and just stock investing has evolved. Yeah, it was interesting you brought up the Dutch East India Company. <clears throat> uh, there was some book I was skimming through that covered part of it. It's a huge book. I forget what it was called. <clears throat> and um, back then, I mean, it's, it's so hard for us to, to fathom, I think, because the flow of information was just almost non-existent. Uh, you know, buying, buying shares in a company like that was kind of almost like buying a house where there's very little information. There's no really active secondary market at all if you wanted to unload your shares. And I think it was just a much simpler equation. I buy shares, I give the company money, it goes out, earns a higher return than I could earn with that cash. And as it generates cash flow, I get my investment paid back over time. <clears throat> and what's cool about this company, Dutch East India, <laughs> is there's a trading company. So, you know, they're sending ships all over throughout Asia, uh, buying and selling. And so, like, when you would receive your dividends, my understanding is they were literally brought back via boat. <laughs> so, <laughs> you can imagine, you know, lining up at the dock, waiting to be showered with these cash payments from the company, <laughs> from the success of their operations. And uh, it's not as exciting today getting paid electronically, but this, the, the idea of passive income is the same. And when you think about where dividends come from, it's also the same today. They're, they're an output. And I think many times, you know, sometimes investors will get hung up on the differentiation between a value stock and a growth stock. And I think it's sometimes similar with like a dividend paying stock versus a non-dividend paying stock. These are all companies trying to do the same thing, maximize shareholder value. There's different ways to skin a cat. And uh, today, I think in the U.S. alone, I read there's over 3,000 companies that pay dividends. So a lot of companies pay dividends. It's just to different degrees. And when you're thinking about how do you earn a return on your investments you make, whether it's in your 401k dumped in an ETF or what have you, it's either through receiving dividends back or seeing price appreciation once you buy. So um, to me, total return is kind of an agnostic thing. I, I don't really care a whole lot if it comes more from dividends versus earnings growth. Um, I just like that a dividend return is kind of cold, hard cash. It's money in the bank. Um, it's a tangible thing. And the companies that pay a dividend, um, there's some appeal there too because it, it limits the amount of retained cash flow a management team has. So ideally they are more disciplined. If, if the company makes a dollar in earnings, for example, and pays out 50 cents, well, they only have 50 cents left now with which to invest in projects. And hopefully that causes them to focus more on their highest returning projects. And if they were to go out and issue a bunch of shares, well, there's a cost associated with that because those shares have dividends that must be paid too. So, I like it from a corporate discipline standpoint as well. Yeah, it's a great perspective. So you said there's 3,000 companies that pay dividends. I was just looking online. It looks like the number of public companies currently listed is only 3,700 these days. And that's, by the way, down from 7,300 in uh, the 1990s. That seems really high, a high percentage. Just in terms of the number of companies issuing dividends, 3,000 out of you know 3,700. Yeah, I think it, it may come from the number of exchanges. Like if you look at the over-the-counter market, you know, there's thousands of companies there. But um, yeah, I think, you know, in the S&P 500 alone, the majority of those companies pay a dividend. And it may not be a big dividend. You know, the, the market's yield is less than 2%. So 
Uh, many companies do have a dividend policy, but it's it's a small portion of the money they make. It might only be you know 10 to maybe 20% of the earnings they make, they distribute, and the rest goes towards buybacks or just reinvesting in the business, acquisitions, et cetera. Um, but there aren't, there aren't that many companies that have paid dividends a really long time, to your point. Um, there are some, like ExxonMobil has paid a dividend since 1882, Colgate, the toothpaste company, 1895, but it's a pretty small list when you're going back you know, 50 or certainly 100 years. Um, the, the, the world of companies keeps shrinking and consolidating, at least in the public markets. Right. Um, what, uh, how many companies do, do you track in your, in your business? <clears throat> so I really like Warren Buffett's concept of circle of competence. And, uh, you know, over the years I realized mine is quite small <laughs> in many ways in life, but in investing in particular, um, I really emphasize focusing on businesses that are simple, that you can understand how they make money. Uh, if you can do that, you know, you're much more likely to hold an investment for the long term and let it compound for you. <clears throat> so um, in terms of our our company's coverage universe, uh, I publish research on about 150 to 200 dividend stocks. And these are kind of the biggest companies that are most popular with investors. Uh, most of them tend to fit that profile of kind of these safe, mature, large businesses that generally speaking pay stable and growing dividends um so it's not a, it's not a huge universe and you know i like to say there's really no more than a couple of hundred businesses i would ever feel comfortable owning just because most places are just too hard to understand a lot of management teams get blindsided by changes and they're in the weeds managing the company every day looking at all the internal data we don't have so being being an outsider it's that much more difficult so i, I like really focusing on businesses that are stable mature and in industries that have a slower pace of change, which is getting harder and harder to find. Right. Yeah. I want to. I want to circle back to that idea of uh, in the risk side. You know, the uh, potential disruption that you might see. Uh, let's move on. You know, obviously, you're a fan of dividend investing. You know, why why should people consider this? Well, I think it depends again on where a person is in their uh, curve. I guess as as an investor and what their goals are as they change. So someone that might have you know, 20, 30, 40 years till retirement and it's gotten wind of this whole saving, investing, compounding thing. Uh, in my view, their goal is really to maximize long-term total return because the bigger your portfolio is, once you hit retirement age, it gets a heck of a lot easier to make the numbers work out without taking on risk beyond what you're comfortable with. So for those investors, you know, dividend growth investing is one avenue that I think makes a lot of sense to generate a healthy long-term total return. Do I think it's going to be better than the market or worse than the market? No, I think it's a strategy that can um, encourage people to stay the course because you can kind of focus on that rising uh, buoy of passive income growing each year if you're doing it right and saving more. But otherwise, like I said at the beginning, I think dividend growth investing is a good strategy to stay the course and kind of track the broader market over time. An ETF could be just fine doing that. Um, a low cost fund can be just fine doing that. I think it's different. Once you get to be thinking more about retirement, maybe it's 10 years away, five years away, maybe you retired five years ago. And the question now becomes not so much about wealth accumulation, but wealth preservation. And how can I, how can I keep this nest egg intact as best I can, make it generate enough income for me in a manner that has me not worrying about what if I live to be 100, am I going to run out of money? 
Um, and the appeal of dividends in this investor's case is really interesting because um, instead of having to focus on just selling off principal, selling off assets you own to raise cash each year, you can kind of change your mentality a little bit to a degree and think, okay, well, what if I could invest in a portfolio that threw off a 4% yield of dividend income that actually grew 4 or 5% per year and use that to live on and supplement it with either smaller shares of principal, smaller sell, sales of principal, or um, other income sources you might have. And that kind of flip of the switch is interesting because it can allow you to preserve principal and um, you know, not worry so much about what do I sell now or what if the market drops 50%. Um, in an email I got, I'll read you it really quick. Let me find it here. From one of our customers, Jeff wrote, you know, thanks to your service, I'm funding our retirement without having to touch any principal at a rate that is still allowing me to add to my savings. I used to live and die daily on the ups and downs of the market, but now I just smile knowing that my dividends keep pouring in no matter what the market does. And that's really, I think, the appeal of dividend investing for that demographic. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, you know, and I guess the, the question is, well, if the market takes a big correction, if, as long as the company's core business is strong and they can continue to continue to pay dividends, you know, at a uh, at the same rate or the same absolute amount of cash, so it'll be a higher percentage yield, uh, they're good. If they start cutting dividends, then it starts to not work as well. Um, but uh, you know, I guess the idea is hopefully you can you can uh, be prepared for that and have a plan to adjust your expenses or um, maybe draw other savings to bridge that gap if that happened. And I think that's the key, both planning and expectations. Uh, this kind of reminds me of Mike Tyson, right? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> and I think with the, with the dividend investing, it's, it's honestly the same way because uh, if you look throughout history, dividend cuts have have kind of come in waves, you know, typically tied to recession events. So 2008 is a pretty extreme example. But if you were to look at just the S&P 500, of those companies that paid a dividend, I believe about a third of them reduced their payout. And um, the S&P's dividends dropped about 25% from peak to trough. And that's that's pretty similar if you look at, like if you one ETF people invest in or like to invest in that pays dividends is Vanguard's high yield fund, the ticker symbol is VYM. And it was a similar story there. They That ETF, I believe it owns over 400 companies. It's, oh, it's only focusing on high yield, not safety. So if you look at the income paid by that ETF from 2008 to its trough in 2010, uh, its dividends fell it was about 24, 25%. And they didn't recover to their prior peak until 2012. So um, to your point, like there's, if you're not prepared for that and you're just thinking like, oh, this is awesome. You know, I found this company that's paying 8% and it's, it's paid me that for the last year and a half. Like it's, it's reliable. Well, it is until it isn't, right? Uh, you have to be focused on companies that are, financially healthy enough to weather a downturn without having to cut their dividends or uh, ideally somewhat recession resilient businesses while also maintaining a diversified portfolio that can deal with an unexpected hit or two because that'll happen too. Like in 2008, no one expected General Electric and Bank of America, these kind of darlings of Wall Street to, 
experience what they experience, not to mention the dividend reductions. So um, there's only so much you can do, but we try and help people stay between the guardrails, focus on the financially healthiest companies that have the best chance of making it through an economic downturn, and also helping people design a stock portfolio that is keeping them between the guardrails from okay. being overexposed to any company or sector. Did um, Have you back-tested your strategy against kind of the 2008, 2010 timeframe? Like, I know you identify specific, you know, you're, you're out there saying, hey, here's this portfolio of companies that I think could be good, and you rate their kind of safety levels for their dividends and provide alerts if you think it's going to, you know, fall and, and not be able to pay the dividend. If you went back, would you have identified these companies that tanked, do you think? We get asked that question somewhat often. The short answer is we haven't gone back and back tested. And that's largely because many of the lessons learned that have gone into the creation of our dividend safety score system uh, were rooted in the 2008 financial crisis. So it, it kind of feels a little cheap to go back and say, oh, you know, knowing, knowing what we know now, if we had known that in 2007, we would have said, avoid all these banks, don't invest in GE. So what we do is we made a real-time track record. So anytime there's a dividend cut, we record it on our website and we show what the company's dividend safety score was before the cut was announced. And so far, um, we've over 98% of the 270 plus companies that have cut their dividends since we've been in business in 2015 have scored below our safe rating, with most of them falling in the very unsafe bucket we have. So we'll keep doing that. We're a big time believer in real-time transparency. So, uh, you know, I'm just as eager as everyone else is, but isn't for the next downturn to kind of show the value and uh, help people to, you know, understand how our system works. And it's, it's something I'm monitoring daily as well. It's not just kind of the static marketing thing. Um, it's something that I really care about since it's so important to our members. So if it really works, then I should be watching your dividend safety score. And if I start seeing a bunch of like red alerts go off, then <laughs> across the bank sector of your of your portfolio, then uh... yes and no. Our safety score system is designed as best I could do it to have a long term outlook. So we're trying to look at a company's dividend safety not next quarter, but over a full economic cycle. So it's taking into consideration things like well, what how the company do during the last downturn. Um, is the balance sheet in good enough shape because the company can maintain a lot of debt now while credit markets are friendly and times are good, but that could come become a big weight if borrowing conditions worsen in a downturn. Uh, we've got you know dozens of different industry templates trying to slice apart dividend safety risk. So um, it's it's comprehensive and it's something that keeps getting better and better too. We we put a lot of thought and time into it. Okay, awesome. Um, all right. Well, I want to move on to kind of some of the downside risks and. And uh, but before that, I'm just going to kind of recap uh, when I was um, doing research for this. You know, it, it seems like the reasons to consider dividend investing are it looks so right now, you know, it looks like higher returns. Right. Um, it encourages discipline investing. And, you know, I, I saw that also on your site that and I've seen this in other places that kind of the average retail investor actually captures a like a 2% return uh, because they're actively, you know, basically making mistakes versus being staying in the market versus the market saying about 8%. Um, you know, and, you know, from a, it generates income for you, um, which without drawing down your principal, so it hedges your longevity and also hedges inflation because you're capturing 
the companies are are factoring in inflation to their own pricing, and that's being passed through in the dividend as well. Um, so those seem to kind of like the, the main benefits of this, uh, which are significant. Um, from from the downside perspective, you know, I think when I was looking at what you're doing, it, you know, you are buying a basket of you know companies, and I think in your site you recommend you know twenty to sixty companies. So it feels active, right? Versus the, you know, if you talk to a passive person, they're like, hey, you know, buy the whole market, buy VTSAX and uh, just own the whole thing. Um, so anyway, from one of our users, he said, you know, I'm interested in why dividend investing is viewed as so special when realizing capital gains is another option. The tax rate on qualified dividends is the same as on long-term cap gains. So since dividends are a return of capital, what makes dividend stocks so special? Mm-hmm. I think it goes back to, again, what the investor is trying to accomplish. Um, to me, I'm total return agnostic for someone who's in the wealth accumulation and growth phase of their investing life. But again, once you're in the, the stage of harvesting income, uh, I think it just it's a lot easier to, to stomach the, the idea of, um, all right, let me find a company like Coca-Cola that's raised its dividend 56 straight years. Let me see if I can build a portfolio of businesses that I think will keep doing that and not have to worry about the market being down 30% in 2020. Um, and what do I sell? How do I, how do I withdraw from my account? Um, so I, I think the issue there is really just where's the income? How's it being generated in retirement? And uh, separately, I think there are some, some other benefits, which, I've kind of talked about at the beginning, a stock that pays a meaningful dividend. Um, they're kind of showing a commitment to rewarding shareholders. They have fewer, they have less capital available with which to invest. So they are hopefully focused on higher returning projects. And it's just a corporate culture that I'm more comfortable aligning myself with. So I think when you're trying to generate safe income, I, I'd feel better hand selecting at least most or some of what I'm in instead of owning a fund which pays a variable dividend and I don't know if it's going to be up or down 30% next year potentially. Got it. Because the kinds of companies that they own. Okay. So I have another question. It's along the same lines uh, from one of our users and he's saying, you know, I'd be interested in the behavioral reasons that result in many investors ignoring the evidence that a globally diversified portfolio of index funds gives them the best shot at the optimal outcome in favor of a dividend growth strategy that targets the value in, in what he calls a naive manner. Uh, some dividend payers are not value stocks, and some non-dividend players are value stocks, resulting in an overall less efficient and, and much less diversified portfolio, which therefore will have a wider dispersion of returns, which on average will be less than a more diversified portfolio. So it's, it's essentially the same question, like, hey, you're concentrating risk, you're being more active. Um, you know, well... Yeah, I think people do it. Just turn on the TV or you know, go over to Seeking Alpha, and you'll see why people engage in irrational strategies. I mean, there's we kind of talk about the online financial world as just being a wild west. I mean, it's you just need a computer and two arms, right, to <laughs> to sell a service or make a sensational claim. You can remain anonymous. Um, there's so many misleading messages, and unfortunately, a lot of people are, are apt to follow them. You know, if I see a headline saying, oh, scoop up this 16% dividend yield, uh, the stock has, you know, potential to generate 22% annualized returns. Like if I don't know much about investing or what's really reasonable, 
um, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll go all in with my portfolio until I get burned and have to learn the hard way. So I think I think that's part of the equation. And then, yeah, I would just reinforce what I said earlier, which is uh, from a long-term perspective, I agree, just, just buy an index fund, keep your costs low. That tends to be the biggest determinant of your long-term returns besides the asset allocation plan you've formulated. And I think dividend-paying stocks can certainly play a good role in that. They have qualities that I think help them to be stocks that are uh, less volatile overall and have a healthy long-term total return potential. So there's different ways to, to skin the total return cat, especially yeah. over a 30-year time period. Okay. And when you're not focused on income too. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so back to kind of the, the you know, your need to kind of actively watch these companies. Do you feel like companies are getting disrupted more quickly these days? I mean, I we definitely see that here and in the technology side of the world, right? It's so, you know, where technology goes, companies get blown up. I mean, Amazon's going, going out and blowing up retailers like JCPenney all over the place. And, you know, it feels like almost every business is subject to this. Now, I grant you things like Coca-Cola or Clorox, you know, that sell things that you use in your house. Yeah, maybe that's not going to get disrupted as much, although from a distribution perspective, maybe. Um, would love your take on, you know, on uh, do you feel like you have to be quicker um, and, and more cognizant of these significant potential existential risks to these companies? Mm -hmm. It's all the companies that aren't new retirement or simply save dividends, right? They're the ones that are in the crosshairs. <laughs> <laughs> no, even our worlds, I'm sure it's the same thing. I, I was actually reading through uh, Kroger's annual report, and you think supermarkets. It's been, it's been around forever, and it sells groceries. You know, People keep eating. The population is slowly growing, but uh, they were talking about you know, their own space is changing rapidly, too, with... Uh, just with my family, for example, you know, we, we order food, groceries from probably three different chains around here, uh, Meyer, Kroger, a place called Market District, and all of them, we just, even Amazon Pantry reviews because, well, I, I like the delivery service here. We pick up at Kroger here. It's just kind of splintering things off. And they've realized this, and they're now having to pour a ton of money into making their stores a convenient place to either shop in person, have groceries picked up, or offer that delivery service, they're going to lose share in a market that's not growing. And that's that can spell the end of a grocer with you know a razor thin operating margin of 2%. But anyway, my point is like, yeah, they're changing. And in the annual report, they mentioned that if you look at the Fortune 500 list, um, fewer than a quarter of the companies that were on the list 30 years ago are still here today. And these are you know absolute giants. So the pace of change is, is certainly accelerating across a lot of different industries. And companies that pay a, a really big dividend that were not ready for change, uh, those can be really dangerous investments because they're trying to balance, on one hand, keeping their shareholder base happy, right, by, by offering this big dividend payment. That's a big part of why someone owns the stock. But then it's also kind of hamstringing them because that's capital they can't use to make the right acquisition, to make the right big investment, to evolve their businesses. So. You do have to be very careful to, again, focus on companies that have the financial health to not only keep shareholders happy and keep the income stream safe and growing, but they also have a good balance sheet. They also have enough retained cash flow. And they're also in an industry that's not shifting around a whole lot um, where they can you know, not risk falling behind. So 
when you look at companies that have paid steady dividends a long time, it rules out a lot of these industries that are just not good places for capital, like steel, um, places where there's a lot outside of a company's control. And you know, even the technology sector, there's, there's very few, at least non-large cap tech companies that are reliable dividend payers that even choose to pay dividend at all. So it's, it's kind of a, a bit self-selecting in that nature, but um, you do have to be careful too with, again, focusing on simple businesses and simple industries is, is a, a core tenet of what I try to follow. Right. Okay. That's great. Um, so I have a, I also wanted to ask you about a couple other um, types of income producing investments that, that you covered on your site, MLPs, master limited partnerships and REITs. So MLPs, I mean, I know at a high level, they're essentially typically you're buying like a share of like a pipeline, some energy, some in the energy space, transporting oil and, uh, you know, any color commentary on those kinds of vehicles as opposed to dividend investing. Yeah. So a lot of dividend investors will own MLPs. Uh, we have not, we've actually never owned an MLP. Uh, there's actually very few that I've ever felt comfortable with. Um, and then that space is evolving pretty rapidly too. And, and for different reasons, not so much technology, but uh, regulatory and tax changes I can briefly touch on, but right. MLPs were created, I believe in the 1980s by Congress to encourage investment in basically energy infrastructure. So right. Companies that have pipelines, they might have storage, they might process oil and gas to help get it from where it's produced to where it needs to go to the end user. Um, and in theories are, you know, supposed to be really reliable, solid businesses, right? Like the, their customers oftentimes have volume committed contracts. So no matter how much oil or gas they send through the pipeline, they're still paying the same fixed fee. They're under long-term deals, et cetera, et cetera. So MLPs in theory have very stable cash flow, and that's largely held true even despite the oil crash that's happened in the last five years. But what's happened in the space in a nutshell with, when the oil prices crashed, even though MLPs marketed their businesses as being insensitive to commodity prices, since they're not the ones that you know make a dollar more if oil is higher or lower, uh, their, their unit prices, their stock prices got hammered. I think the MLP index was down 60%. So this, this caught a lot of investors by surprise. And <clears throat> what happened was MLPs are required to, to distribute uh, the vast majority of their cash flow as they're called distributions, whether the same thing as dividends. So to, to grow the business, an MLP has to constantly issue uh, new units, new equity or debt. And when their stock prices tanked because investors were fearful that, well, maybe these oil companies won't be able to honor these contracts anymore, they could no longer issue equity affordably. So they had all these big growth projects in the works and they had to decide, well, do we cut the dividend? Or do we cut back on the, do we stop these growth projects? And a lot of them decided, well, we're cutting the dividend. And that, that really stunned a lot of retail investors who had been spoon fed this message of it's a toll booth business model. It, nothing, not, what can go wrong? And it's an eight, it's an 8% yield because they pay out all the cash flow. So a lot of MLPs are actually going away now. They're either rolling up or converting to corporations. So the, the industry is changing quite a bit and tax reform brought in lower corporate rates and MLPs don't pay taxes, they're passed through entities. So it made that structure a little less attractive too, since the tax savings weren't as great. So that's it's a space that has evolved significantly. And I always urge investors to be cautious there. There's only a few MLPs 
that I feel like are really well-run companies and will probably stay MLPs and not be affected. The rest, you really have to be careful with what you're buying. Yeah, that's great to get that co- that commentary. It does definitely seem like a, a pretty niche investment. And uh, how about REITs? Do you look at those? I do. Uh, REITs, I'm much more comfortable with. Um, again, all things in moderation because like MLPs, REITs or real estate investment trusts, uh, they've been around a lot longer. I believe they were created in 1960. And it was for a similar reason. You know, the government wanted to encourage investment in real estate. So uh, real estate investment trusts, they own, gosh, they can own just about anything real estate related. So uh, public storage is one consumers a lot are probably pretty familiar with, uh, self-storage. Um, they might own malls. They could own industrial warehouses. They could own hotel chains. Uh, they could own healthcare facilities, gas stations. There's a ton of different types of REITs. It's really a big box of chocolates. And it's it's also niche too in that uh, right now, at least the real estate sector, I believe it's less than 5% of the overall S&P 500, but it's a big appeal to income investors again, because they're required by law to pay out at least 90% of their taxable income as dividends. So they have a, a high, as it's known, a payout ratio. If they earn a dollar of taxable income, they have to send at least 90 cents of it back to their investor base. So their yields are higher, which again, raises the appeal of these as retirement holdings. Uh, we we own some REITs in our dividend portfolios, and you have to be careful too because like MLPs, if they're growing REITs, they do have to issue capital to keep growing because the dividend doesn't leave much left. So they got hit pretty hard during the financial crisis too. Over 30% of REITs either cut their dividends, suspended it, or paid it out in shares instead of cash. So again, you got to focus on what industry it's in, how cyclical is that, and how healthy is this company? Is the balance sheet good? Is the payout ratio reasonable? And that's, again, what we try to do with our dividend safety scores to help investors size up, okay, what REITs seem like a good fit for my risk tolerance. Great. It's awesome to get that color. Um, anything else that your users are kind of actively looking at besides kind of dividend stocks, REITs? I would say most of our the people that are drawn to our website, they have, of course, a portfolio of individual dividend stocks that probably includes REITs and MLPs. Um, a lot of them also will own some ETFs or mutual funds, and that could be for a few reasons. One, some people just, I think, feel uh, more comfortable the more diversified they seem to be. And two, they might only have options like that if they have a company-sponsored 401k, whatever the restrictions might be. But outside of those securities, less common ones are preferred stocks. And you can think of a preferred stock as like kind of a hybrid between you know, Coca-Cola stock you might buy and bonds that Coca-Cola sells. Um, they, they tend to pay a, a fixed dividend and uh, it's usually a higher yield because of that. Typically you can find a preferred that might yield four, five, six percent, but not, not a whole lot of companies issue preferred stocks. Um, but their, their higher yields make them attractive and they're more stable too, since, you know, they're, they're that hybrid, right? Between a safe bond and a riskier share of common stock. Uh, the other type of investment some people will look at are closed-end funds. And if a preferred stock is a hybrid between a common stock and a bond, a closed-end fund is somewhat of a hybrid between um, an actively managed mutual fund and an ETF. So they, they trade like ETFs, but they're actively managed like an active mutual fund. So 
their fees tend to be higher, but they also engage in strategies that boost their income appeal. So it's not uncommon to see closed end funds that might offer a yield of six, eight, 10%, usually because they employ leverage. So these can, these can be riskier investments. You, again, you have to be really careful to understand like, well, what, what is this fund doing? Just because it says it's a fund doesn't mean it's a safe, diversified little angel that'll float through the next downturn or whatever their, whatever their strategy is. It can vary wildly with how they invest. So it's an area that I'm not totally opposed to, but you have to really do your homework if you're going to own some of these vehicles because since they do trade like an ETF, um, their, their, their valuation can drift significantly from the value of their underlying assets. They can trade at huge premiums when times are good. And during a downturn like the financial crisis, even if their investments are worth 100 bucks, investors freak out and they can trade at you know, 70 cents on the dollar. So you have to be aware of those risks to go into that space. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for, for a lot of folks, they really have to be thoughtful about what kind of risk they uh, can handle emotionally and also financially um, and really understand that, hey, I mean, if you're targeting a, a return that's well above market indexes, you know, there's risk that comes with it. I mean, you, you can never get away from that. It's like everyone's always looking, oh, can I get 12 percent? Yeah, sure. But just be ready for some extreme volatility <laughs> in your portfolio, which <laughs> many people don't understand. Right. Um, I think wasn't Bernie Madoff targeting 15% annual returns? People are like, oh, great. <laughs> right. It's, it's just, if it sounds too good to be true, just come it to your is. senses or be, be, be willing to take a speculative bet and understand the consequence. It's one of the two. Right. Um, all right. So I'd love to kind of understand, you know, from your perspective, how to just how to get started doing this. So if somebody is interested in this and they say, okay, I want to put part of my portfolio towards, um, you know, a dividend strategy. Um, you know, how, how would you, how do you suggest they get started? Right. Uh, like we were saying just a minute ago, I think a, a big part of the work happens before you get started doing anything, thinking through issues. A lot of what you guys cover, um, trying to understand just what's my risk tolerance? What am I trying to do? And come up with an asset allocation plan, right? How much should I invest in bonds? How much do I want to hold in cash? How much do I put into stocks? Um, answering that question will by far have the biggest impact on not only your income generation, but just your long-term return and risk profile. And it's, it's going to be different for everybody. Um, with that said, once you have decided, all right, I'm, I'm going to invest hundred grand into a dividend stock portfolio for whatever reason, uh, it comes, the question is, well, how, how do I do that? Well, you could buy a dividend ETF and that can work well depending on what you're going for. The downsides to an ETF, in my view, are uh, you, you lose a little bit of control, right? Well, Vanguard's high yield ETF yields 3% BYM. For a lot of people, like that's that's not going to cut it. I, I think you can have a conservative strategy that puts you between a 3.5% and a 4.5% yield in today's market. So if you're just buying the ETF, you're kind of maybe leaving some income on the table depending on what you're looking at. That's one of the downsides, and you don't necessarily understand the risk profile of it because it could be spread across 50 companies or 500, and it's not focused on safe income. And why do you think that VYM only pays three? I mean, I'm assuming VYM, VYM has a really low load. Why do you think they're only achieving 3% when you think you know, you can achieve 35 to 4%, 4.5%? So they're spread out across it's over 400 companies. And when you think about the S&P 500 has a yield of 2%, there's just not that many companies that yield more than 4%. Uh, we're probably looking at, 
a few hundred, and a lot of those are going to be junk companies that you don't want to own. So part of the blessing and curse of an ETF is like, yeah, you get a lot of diversification, but that can cause trouble actually when it comes to generating a reasonably high income and a safe income too. If you look at the dividend payments from BYM, for example, they're all over the map each quarter. You have no idea what you're going to get paid. Coca-Cola, they tell you exactly what you're going to get paid. So if you're investing in individual paying stocks, you can customize your portfolio's yield and risk profile, and you know exactly how much you're going to get every month of the year, which a lot of people appreciate being able to see it. It, again, helps to focus on safe dividends. But how do you do this all? All right, so you decided 100 grand in dividend paying stocks. Now what? Well, you know, there's articles you can read on our website or others, I'm sure, that talk about how to build a diversified portfolio. But there's just a few guidelines that our website and portfolio tracker adhere to that I believe remove most of the risk. So first is you don't want to just own a few stocks because your return profile is all over the place. That's why people like diversified index funds. Like Warren Buffett, if you look at his partnership back in the 50s and 60s, he might have a single stock that accounted for upwards of 40% of his portfolio. And it worked out great. You know, in 1968, his portfolio was up 58%. The Dow was up 9%. <laughs> you don't want that in retirement. <laughs> so I've kind of settled on this range of like, if you're owning really quality, basic, safe looking companies, I would not go less than 20 in a portfolio. That's pretty concentrated. But I think once you get beyond 60 as well, it's you're kind of owning so many things. It's, it's, it becomes much more of a chore to manage it, and the diversification benefits start to tail off. And there's academic studies that kind of support that range, which I can you know direct anyone who's interested to. But besides that, you're looking for companies that operate in different industries. Like if you were saying, okay, I've got 40 bank stocks. These are great companies. They pay dividends a long time. They mint money. Warren Buffett loves them. Well, if you owned those before 2008, your dividend income would have been slammed and you probably would have lost a, a ton of money and panic sold. So it's important to spread your risks over different parts of the market. So I like to cap each sector's exposure at 25% of my portfolio's overall value. And again, that just is to protect me from extending too far in an area. The final part I'd say is I like to equal weight these investments too, because it's really difficult to know which stock will go on to be one of the best long-term performers or run into trouble too. The world is changing fast as we've talked about. So you're, you're kind of following those three overarching guidelines and you're focused again on, on looking for companies that you understand. They seem like simple businesses as you learn about them and their dividend appears to be, has a risk profile I should say that's aligned with what you're willing to, to accept. Okay, and you've constructed, really you've constructed kind of three portfolios that yourself that, that you invest in personally? And track correct okay mm -hmm. and how do you how have you separated those what are the what's the purpose of having three for each one so each one has a slightly different goal um, our most popular one is by far a conservative retirees portfolio and that one targets a yield between three and a half and four and a half percent with low volatility safe dividends that moderately grow over time and we're just trying to basically track the broader market with, with less risk overall so that portfolio is focused on uh, mature companies like Johnson & Johnson, right, that paid a dividend a long time, they remain in great financial health, they keep moderately growing, and they're defensive businesses during downturns. Um, uh, the other portfolios, one is called our, our long-term dividend growth portfolio, and that's focusing on companies that yield close to 1.5% to 2.5%, so they're retaining a lot more cash flow to grow quickly. 
So you're not going to buy that if you're retired and looking to generate income today. That's that's kind of more in the vein of people who like seeing this passive income snowball starting small and they're trying to grow their wealth a little bit more aggressively. Okay. Got the it. The third portfolio is kind of a mix. Okay. Between the two. Got it. But the most popular one is those con- conservative retirees. I mean, what is your what does your audience look like uh, in terms of age and kind of wealth or savings? Well, our service is, again, focused really on this concept of, I think there's skill behind generating safe dividend income and reducing portfolio risk. So we're not, we're not selling the message of, you know, beating the market or, you know, buy these 10 stocks every month. We want people to learn how to do this on their own with us by their side, sending them the right tools and easy to use data and research so they can go forward with confidence to meet their goals without being stuck with high advisory fees or anything like that. So most of our audience is someone who is now thinking about retirement and, hey, how am I how am I going to make the numbers work and can dividends play a role in that? So most of the people that are interested in our service are between 50 and 90 years old, if you can believe that. And they all have this shared interest of either learning more about building a dividend paying portfolio or they already have a portfolio in place and they're looking for someone who can help them understand the risk profile and monitor that going forward to keep their income stream as safe as you reasonably can. Yep. Makes sense. That's cool. Um, so what's, uh, why not start your own fund? It's a good question. We, we get a lot of emails from people that are asking us questions like, Hey, why don't you guys launch an ETF or can you personally review my portfolio? I, I'd pay you something to do that. And uh, today at least, you know, we're not an RIA, uh, we, we legally can't do that and we don't. Uh, we, we kind of provide information people do those things themselves. And I think it's I think it's just really hard to do a lot of things well without sacrificing on quality. So um, for the foreseeable future at least, you know our plan is really to just double down on what we feel we already do well now that our customers like and try and make more of them increasingly love it. And that's so far it's been just a a really, really valuable thing for us to do that. You know, we we're kind of unique in that we don't we don't do any active marketing. In fact, this is I think the second podcast I've ever done. The last one was three or four years ago, but I really like Steve, so here I am. Uh, instead, like we're we're a small team and we we focus everything that we do on just improving our service. So you don't see like our research blasted anywhere else on the web. It's all on our own website. Uh, we're not out there, you know, tweeting about things. It's it's just really an internal focus, and I think our customers have have really appreciated that. We, we're not trying to upsell them on new services we've launched or or anything like that. Um, and they've they've talked a lot about us, and that's been how our business has primarily grown to over 2,000 customers today. It's just word of mouth, keeping people happy. And so until we feel like we've we've tapped out on opportunities to to make our service better and better. Um, Right now, I don't foresee us moving to another another model, but there is a need there. There is because at some point, um, you know, when you when you, you kind of age out of of managing individual stocks, right? Your 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 wife doesn't have an interest in it. Your kids aren't interested, um, or they don't have the knowledge, and you're you're kind of left like, well, gosh, what do I do? So, um, in fact, you know, some of our cancellations, most of them even are due to people aging out where they say, hey, I love the service, but like I just can't manage a portfolio of individual stocks anymore. So they seek out an advisor or any, some, some, other, some other way to do it. So that's a problem that's, that's on our minds a lot. Um, there's, there's not you know, a super easy way you're thought of to solve it without going down that route of providing more individualized service. But 
Um, for now, at least, we're just going to stay the course. And I think that, uh, you know, that's, that's something our customers really appreciate about us. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I, I totally get staying focused and, and you know, focusing on your differentiator, um, which is this dividend safety score and actively, you know, kind of actively watching these companies. I think that has value. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I'm after being in this space for a while, it, it does feel like so much of this is lowering the barrier for people, whether it's mm -hmm. for planning on our side, like, hey, anybody can build their own financial plan and retirement plan, and you can actually understand it and get educated uh, to yeah, investing in how to do it, you know, in a low cost way, in a way that you understand and in a way that meets your needs. If it's, um, you know, and like you, most of our users are over 50. They're kind of like, hey, what I really need is how do I convert this pool of assets to income in a way that I understand that lasts for as long as I will, which is unknown and adjust for inflation, which is unknown mm -hmm. and doesn't, you know, go up and down in a huge way that keeps me up all night because <clears throat> I think everybody feels like, hey, the market's pretty highly valued. It's had this 10 year run. What happens if we hit 2008 again? I mean, unlikely we'll hit 2008, but if we hit, uh, you know, if you have a 20, 25% hit, which is, I think, the standard deviation of uh, the, the equity markets. <laughs> and so you should expect that in any given year that could happen. Um, and you go from a million dollars to 750,000 bucks. You're like, huh, eh, that's, <laughs> that's painful to psychologically. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, anyway, my point is, is that I think the idea of a fund uh, would probably be pretty scalable for you. Uh, that's a great business model. I mean, having come from the the fund world, I mean, it's it's unbelievable. The place I was working at, uh, you know, they they started up in the late '90s, and by 2010, they had scaled that business from nothing to, at the peak, at least over 10 billion in assets. And when you're charging, you know, one percent, and you don't need to add people to grow that business, I mean, we could have kept the same team in place, and if the business quadrupled to 40 billion, your revenue just went up significantly and your headcount stayed the same. So it's it's a great scalable model if you can deliver results for folks. And uh, yeah, it's, well, that's where our Vanguard has been crushing the fun world and bringing forcing, you know, fees to come down, which is good. And, you know, our thesis is the same. Similar things are going to happen to individual advisors. So one of the mm -hmm. places that high, fee, high fees still, still exist are individual financial advisors and they do add a lot of value. Um, the question is, it's the same model though, like taking 1% of someone's million dollars is $10,000 a year and that return gets lost that year. All the future compound growth gets lost. If you look at the math, it ends up being like 33% of your lifetime returns. <laughs> uh, oh, it's, it's, it's scary how it works and it sounds so innocent, 1%. Oh, yeah, 1%. Sounds sure. great. <laughs> well, if, I, if I have an advisor and I advise $100 million and I get 1%, I'm making a million dollars a year. So great. <laughs> Let's keep doing more of that. You know, We wouldn't be doing this podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, but I mean, to be fair, though, when you go back to that number we talked about earlier, that 2.1%, I think it was Dalbar who conducted this 20-year study and found that. It was a 2.1% average annual return the individual investor earned. I mean, gosh, an advisor could charge 3%. If they just keep that person invested, earning the market return, they'd be, you know, probably tripling their return to six percent a year after fees. <laughs> no, and I totally buy it. So, I mean, and that that's where the value of the advisor is. It's it's managing people's behavior and talking them off the cliff when they come rushing and be like, okay, it's 
2008, I want to go to cash. Let's go to cash, right, or 2009. Mm -hmm. And that's what people did. They went to cash, and then the market snaps back, and you're in cash, and then you're like, okay, let's get back in, mm -hmm. you know, in uh, 20, 2019. <laughs> let's put it all in. Um, completely. I was looking at uh, something I'd written down. I think this was in, I think it was January of 2016. That's when the market dropped. It might have been 10% to start the year, and everyone was freaking out. And T. Rowe Price, it might have been Fidelity or Schwab, I forget. Um, yeah, they, they said their, uh, their contact with customers, whether it's phone or email, like surged 60% to all-time highs. Right. Because <laughs> that's when everyone pays attention, like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Give, give me out. Well, the last, couple, been... yeah, the last couple times the market's corrected a lot, the, the, the robos out there have actually had some site outages or people can't get through and they're like, wait a sec. <laughs> <laughs> can't talk to these guys <laughs> yeah there's it's a really interesting how that whole landscape is evolving we we have some advisors who i think use our service and uh it's just kind of the same story they're looking for ways to differentiate themselves right because people are you know fees are becoming more and more transparent performance track records more and more transparent people are talking information is just flowing everywhere online so uh, anything you can do to to just show people how you're adding value and kind of justifying mm -hmm. um, the structure. I think it's just that transparency is really increasingly appreciated. And if not, you know, there's this alternatives that are bubbling up. So For sure. um, like, like all things in capitalism, it can, someone will benefit from the greater competition, but it's not always the incumbents. Totally. Um, all right. So um, just as we wrap up, I just love to hear kind of like what, what's a day in life like for you? Like what are you spending your time doing? Well, with a two-and-a-half-year-old toddler and another baby on the way next month, <laughs> life has been busy <laughs> preparing outside of work. Um, no, I love my family. They're great. But from a work perspective, you know, a day in the life, what I, one of the reasons I love investing is most days are different. Um, something new is happening. Something is changing. And oftentimes, there's nothing to do about it. But as we've just talked about with people reacting to market fluctuations, um, there is something to do about it in terms of how do you help people stay calm and stay the course? And that's, that's a huge part of our job. Once, once someone has kind of bought into how dividend investing can help them meet a goal in retirement, then it's really about managing the risk profile. And that includes both behavioral issues as well as financial issues like dividend safety. So every morning when I wake up, uh, I usually skim through Wall Street Journal and a few other sources I, I look to and, and just see like, hey, has is, is anything interesting happened that would, you know, be getting the attention of some of our members? You know, for example, a couple months ago, Johnson & Johnson stock plunged again because it was dragged into the opioid crisis. So if you hold Johnson & Johnson, you're probably like, oh my goodness, like it's down 10% today. You know, should I sell? Like is the dividend still safe? So there's, there's kind of a, a never-ending stream of questions that I don't know what the questions will be any day or week, but I do my best to find them and get in front of them before someone would do something they may regret by just reacting on, on emotions to a situation. So a lot of my time is spent actually in the weeds, um, staying up to speed on uh, material events that affect the companies that I, I cover with research and that a lot of our members own and are interested in continuing to monitor as well beyond just a little number on the screen on how safe the dividend looks. 
So the research process is, is really big for me. It's my background. I love doing it. And it takes a lot of time to do thoughtful research. Um, it's, it's, it involves a lot of digging. So uh, that's, that's my passion. That's what I spend most of my time doing. Otherwise, you know, as our business has grown, uh, you get more emails throughout the day to people asking questions about all sorts of stuff, some entertaining, some not so entertaining. And, uh, you know, we answer all those in-house. We don't outsource anything. And I think people like being able to hear from us directly on issues they're wondering about. So those are those are oftentimes two of my biggest tasks. And then we'll spend time as well prioritizing what comes next for the service. So by maintaining that that direct connection with our with our customers, it's it's oftentimes pretty easy to discern like, hey, you know what, we're hearing a lot about this or uh, people seem to complain about this problem. Is there a way we can we can address that or do that better with our service than we are today? And building out kind of short-term roadmaps, I guess, that that are aligned with the long-term vision we have for the service. So it's really blocking and tackling. It's not too exciting, but um, it's it's really it's really a lot of fun to be able to work on something that you're passionate about and to to get emails from people that are happy with what you're doing and happy enough to refer other people to it too. That's great. It's great to hear. So, so it sounds like there's core research, they're supporting your users, and then you've automated this to some degree, your, your safety score and you're kind of, that's continually running in the background or how does that work? You just run it periodically. It's, it's kind of a hybrid system as well. So all of the website's data is updated and and basically real time. We pay a lot of money to our vendor. (laughs) Uh, A lot of money. They're, they're great though. They've, they've provided us a lot of information we need. Um, and having that up to date and timely is, is critical when, you know, it's so easy to go into your brokerage account. It's not like the, the East India company, right? Where I have no idea what's happening. I'm waiting for the boat to arrive at the dock. Uh, now it's, it's, it's super easy to go into your brokerage account and see stuff changing. And that needs to be reflected on our website as well. So people can understand usually to do nothing. Um, <clears throat> so uh, with our website and our dividend safety scores, we're getting all the information up to date every single day. The question is, with our long-term focus, you know, ideally our scores never change because we've accounted for risks that can happen in different industries and the different companies based on their financial profile. So scores very rarely change, even though we're looking at all the data every single day. And when they do change, it's often because there has been a material shift in the risk profile. Maybe a company made this huge acquisition and now the balance sheet is loaded up with debt. Well, certainly if the dividend looked very safe before, it's probably not looking as safe today. So we'd go in and we'd change that. So I am the one who actually looks at every single dividend change. Um, it's, it's, it's not all robo. It's kind of a, a recommendation system, if you will. So if it's telling me, hey, you know, this company's dividend score looks like it should be downgraded because... It took on more debt or earnings are declining to a risky level. It's paying out too much of its cash flow. Then I'll go in, I'll get to investigate the situation and kind of make a final call. So uh, I think a lot of times it can be tricky to automate something like that without just losing the performance element and the quality. So it's a hybrid system and it's an area that we're we're spending a lot of time on. I mean, every single week I'm, I'm doing something related to dividend safety. So uh, customers care about a lot, a lot about it too. And in the future, we'd, we'd like to explore different ideas of how we can make that information even more 
easily communicated and understood. So um, it's, I can explain more if you'd like. That's kind of the high level. No, no, no. I, this, is, this is super helpful. I, I always think it's interesting to kind of, you know, when you when you look at a lot of investors, if they're passive, they're like, hey, I just want to buy the whole world and have everything mm-hmm. work out. But when you dive into into the markets and then into companies and then it's down to people and what actually happens, you know, returns are driven by <laughs> individual innovation, hard work. You know, there's t- you can't get, a, get away from the fact that uh, what makes the market and our economy works is all this individual activity. So active is definitely a part of the world and uh, innovation is a part of it. And identifying that as what makes uh, and capturing that value is uh, is what makes our economy work. So it's always kind of cool to see how it's here, how it translates for individual people and companies. No, I think you're exactly right. And active absolutely has a place. I think the problem was there were too many active managers masquerading. Uh, they're, they're basically passive managers, but charging fees like active ones, owning 150 stocks. And when, when you do that, you're one thing it's impossible to stay on top of your portfolio. And it's, for two, unless you're really concentrated at the top, it's almost impossible to deviate from the, the passive benchmark you're tracking or competing against, especially net of fees. So I think there are just too many active managers. I mean, at one point, and maybe still true today, there are more hedge funds than there are Taco Bells in America. <laughs> so it's just it's, it's unbelievable how many people are, are studying the market. And right. a lot of these guys are, are really, really smart, too. I, uh, I had a chance to visit a fund out in New York a few years ago. Um, I sent them some of my research in this huge packet. It was like $7 to ship the thing or whatever. Because <laughs> there's a few dozen managers that I, I just love reading about them. I, I totally respect their process. And they've got, you know, the decades of performance to prove they had skill, whether or not that can be sustained in today's information age remains to be seen. But, oh, man, the amount of diligence these guys do. So they're telling me, if you were to start out there as an analyst, you would study your first year, you might study like five companies and you're working 60, 70 hours a week. So you're, you're doing everything, right? You're you're learning about their suppliers. You're talking to competitors. You're you're learning about their cost, everything. You're flying planes all over the world, and you know, despite doing all that homework, um, they've not been able to any given decade pick like, all right, you know, this is a stock that's going to be our best performer over the next ten years, uh, and half the decisions are still wrong because the world is constantly changing. So no matter how much work you do. These guys are doing their absolute best to set the right price for a stock. The market is really efficient most of the time, not all the time. Like 2008, panics happened both at a company level and market level. But I think the active world is going to continue to favor managers like them who are truly active, that run a concentrated portfolio to set prices, and the rest will just go to kind of the lowest cost provider that'll that'll track the market. So it's a it's a healthy it's a healthy balance. I think that's ultimately going to be achieved at some point. That's cool to get your perspective. Um, all right. Well, look, I think we should wrap this up. Any any key influencers or uh, podcasts or doesn't sound like you're super active on Twitter. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't follow me. <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of like Johnny Depp, but you have heard of me, right? I'm tired of the Caribbean. No, I don't think anyone's heard of us, really. <laughs> We're just a little, a little gnat. But uh, in terms of influencers... Um, like I said, I, I would refer people to just read up on some of these managers that I think are really 
skillful and have just an incredibly detailed diligence process. And there aren't a whole lot of them out there in my opinion, but uh, for example, like there's the Sequoia Fund out in New York, there's Harris Associates in Chicago, Vulcan Value Partners down south, and all those guys publish letters either quarterly or, or yearly. And uh, it's really interesting to, to read some of their thoughts. And of course, they're not telling you, you know, the juicy inside analysis they've done, but just learning how they think and how they invest and even following some of their, their holdings. This is going to be more for the hobbyists, but like a site you can use is Whale Wisdom. And you can, it's free, you can pull up any of these managers. It's called a 13F, it tracks what they own. They have to report to the SEC if they're over a certain size. And you can see it, it makes it really easy to see like, oh, what did, what did they buy? What did they sell last quarter? And uh, it's kind of a cool insight. The other person I'd recommend following, and I don't know him personally, and there's actually not a whole lot of content out there either on him, but Pat Dorsey, he's in Chicago as well. He runs Dorsey Asset Management now. But he was uh, a key piece in building up Morningstar's equity analyst team and developing their moat rating, which a lot of people are familiar with. And uh, his his view of the world and his approach to fundamental investing, I'd say, is it really resonates with me. Um, he, he also runs a very concentrated portfolio. In fact, I think he owns 10 stocks, maybe fewer. But he's, he's up to, I believe, half a billion in assets to management today. And again, a guy who really does his homework and puts his money where his mouth is by being truly active. So uh, if anything you can find on Pat Dorsey, look, he also wrote the book, The Little Book That Builds Wealth, which is a, a classic I read a long time ago, too. Okay, cool. Yeah, I haven't heard of him. I'll have to check it out. Well, he's probably doing pretty well if he's uh, taking a percent of assets and <laughs> running 10 <laughs> stocks. <laughs> well, I think Facebook is one of his biggest positions, like maybe 10, 20%, and they've been crushing it. So he's he's more than... He's probably been underpaid <laughs> the last three years, actually. <laughs> Interesting. All right, cool. Um, any questions for me before we wrap it up? I will ask you a question. I, I really love when we were first getting to know each other a few weeks or months ago at Time Blurs. You were telling me a little bit about how you were helping your mom think through some financial planning issues, and that's what kind of set you down the path with new retirement. Mm -hmm. Great story. Um, so my question is, you know, how, how did you position her to generate income back then? And is there something you would change now? And the follow-up is why isn't she using simply safe dividends? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Um, I would say that we, we didn't, we didn't do nearly enough on the income side. It was really when we first took on our situation, it was first about expenses and kind of right-sizing her situation. Um, and getting her to a place of confidence. So, um, you know, what, what happened was we, you know, it was a multi-year process, but we we're kind of looking at, let's just our situation. I mean, she, she, she was, her income expense situation was upside down. So she was burning money and she was in, using credit cards to subsidize her life. Like so many people mm -hmm. do. And so once she said we could help her, you know, we, <clears throat> we started looking at this and said, all right, look, we got to kill the, credit card debt. Okay, well, you're you're living in the 6,000 square foot house with two people on 10 acres of land. It costs a fortune to heat and all this other stuff. Do you really need this? And do you want to, you know, there are other places like closer to town where you could have a kind of a much more manageable life. And so <clears throat> we went through this process of helping her kind of downsize, right size and move to a smaller house that was much less expensive, freed up home equity, you know, in a much more walkable area. Um, 
uh, freed up some capital. You know, there was some investing, but not strictly focused on um, dividend investing. And so in retrospect, you know, we I think that would have been something we could have done um, for her. But she's kind of gotten to a place where her, you know, she can live decently on Social Security, Medicare. You know, we've subsidized her life to to some degree as well. Or her life has gotten we've done some internal family transactions to facilitate things um, like um, around around housing and stuff like that, that still lets us capture some of the return and some of her assets, but uh, also helps her with her life. And, uh, you know, I think she's at a place where, you know, she's financially confident. So she's got enough income, enough assets. She understands her situation. She's not worried about it. And that's kind of unlocked the rest of her life. I mean, when you don't have that, and that's a big part of what informs what we're doing. We think a lot of people are spending so much time kind of worried about their money, the money side of this, that they can't think about anything else in their life. Um, And the more that we can help people kind of get organized, see easy things to do better, to be more efficient, bring their costs down, use their assets better, you know, get their income and expenses in line. um, And then, take simple steps to try to make that better. If that's <clears throat> setting up a dividend, you know, income stream or some other kind of passive income stream through rentals or whatever it is, you know, help them kind of get to that point of economic confidence. Then they can do other things with their human capital, which is kind of the big secondary unlock for our businesses. Like, okay, you know, there's this huge demographic wave that's been happening, 10,000 people a day turning 65, but they're living a lot mm-hmm. longer. I mean, the average person I talked to now is 60 to 70 years old. You know, if they're reasonably healthy, they're going pretty strong, you know. Yeah, they may not mm-hmm. be working in the career they had when they were 45 or 50, but they still want to do stuff, be involved in the community, contribute. Um, so we, we see kind of what we're doing is trying to help people get to that economic security so they can do these other things. Um, but yeah, and learning more with our users you know, it's like you have 2000 customers. Well, <laughs> there are, think about how many people are out there. I mean, we have 70,000 users that are similar to yours and probably, you know, less than 5%, right? Pursue a strategy like yours, but could many more benefit? Probably. You know, that's why we're talking to you, learning about this. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, I may fire it up, put together a portfolio. <laughs> I probably will <laughs> see how it performs. Um, so yeah. So anyway, does that answer your question? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, you guys are solving a, a big problem. Um, I'm actually going to be talking with my parents soon just to go over some of the different options that are out there because it, it is really, really difficult, I think, to, to wrap your mind around all these different issues. And it's stressful. I mean, you, time is not necessarily on your side anymore to make a mistake. And, uh, you know, your mom was really fortunate to have you and your brother there to, to help her think through some of these things because it's not necessarily rocket science, but when it's all combined like that and you don't really have a trustworthy place to go, it's, it makes life really difficult. So, um, yeah, I think when you're in the space, you know, it doesn't feel like rocket science, but if you're a non-financial person, you know, like my mom was in advertising, you know, and then she was in real estate, but she wasn't necessarily like a financial person. You know, I, I worked for Schwab and Wells and I worked in financial services. So you, know, you kind of pick up a lot of things in doing this. But, you know, if you're like a DJ or something, you know, or you're an artist or you're a writer, <clears throat> you're not thinking about money. You may not even want to think about it. You know, and, the, and mm-hmm. 
So then it's like, who do you trust? Do you understand it? And so much of this industry is like people trying to win trust. And there's so many bad actors out there or people that are just, they feel like they're doing the right thing, but they're actually, you know, not that efficient or they're taking too much risk or their fees are way too high. Um, that's the challenge, you know, um, helping people navigate that is the, is the opportunity, I think. Yeah. It's like the, the balance we have to strike is, is a hard one because it's, it's that thing of keeping it simple enough, simplicity to make it understandable and approachable and easy enough to, to follow, but then also keeping it thorough and detailed enough where it's being followed in the most responsible manner possible. And it's, that's kind of a never ending problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this comes up all the time. So, it's like, it's simple, but not easy. You know, <laughs> everything's like losing weight, simple, but not easy, right? Getting in shape, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, same thing here. All right. Well, this is, this is really good. Uh, so I'm going to just wrap it up. So uh, thanks, Brian, for being on our show. Uh, thanks, Dotto Robeson, for being our sound engineer. Anyone listening, thanks for listening. Hopefully you found this useful. Our goal at New Retirement is to help anyone plan and manage their retirement so they can make the most of their money and time. And if you've made it this far, I encourage you to check out Brian's site, simplysafedividends.com and his service. Uh, check out our site at New Retirement and our planning tools. Uh, and if you want to join our private Facebook group or follow us on Twitter, uh, you can look for those things. Just look for New Retirement on Facebook or at New Retirement on Twitter. And finally, we are trying to build the audience for this podcast. So if you have a chance to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere, we'd appreciate it. And uh, also, we, we read those and all questions. Uh, we try to work them into the show. Okay, so with that, we'll uh, wrap it up. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve.